Welcome to the New Year's Eve, 31st of December, 2023 episode of the Greenwich, A Town for All Seasons show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and it's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich, A Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, needless to say, Happy New Year! (laughs) The past year has been full of joys and challenges, needless to say. My hope for all of us is that year 2024 will be filled with an abundance of smiles, adventures, good health, prosperity, and a cornucopia of blessings. Peace, joy, and happiness for all, near and far. Coming up on today's show. I'll share news of a proposal in 1896 to convert the calendar to 13 months. A Riverside resident was feeling a bit jinxed in January 1923. One of Greenwich's clubs celebrated with a masquerade dance that attracted many people of society. A Russian prince visiting town was on trial in New York City for unpaid bills. I'll have news of drunkenness, abusive language in 1908, as well as a protest by citizens of a decision to authorize the shooting of unmuzzled dogs. A century ago, the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce published its own New Year's resolutions, while Judge Frederick Hubbard wrote about the history of the old or oldest town hall. We will have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliates' clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. Eastern Neurological Services of New York offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Dr. Judy Gao, MD, a top New York neurologist, specializes in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, 
Eastern Neurological Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders, including general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Now, the most trusted platform for medical products you need is available for you at healthsitepro.com. Shop online for the best in preventative medicine and health maintenance. These products are used by Dr. Gao and her family, and if they're good enough for them, well, they're good enough for you as well. Visit easternneurologic.com or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. I have a question for you. What do you think of the idea of changing the calendar from 12 months to 13? Well, believe it or not, 127 years ago, that would be in 1896, such a proposition was circulated around. Now, needless to say, it didn't happen, but um, this was discussed, and it was uh, done so in the Greenwich Graphic on December 26, 1896, a proposition to start in 1900 with a new division of time, and that, of course, would be 13 months. It is suggested that on January 1, 1900, a new division of the year into 13 months be instituted. It is claimed, says Scientific American, that this is not so preposterous as most people would likely to consider it at the first thought. If such a division were made, the first 12 months would have just 28 days, or four weeks each, and the new month, 29, to make 365, and 30 in leap year. After a few days, there would be no need to refer to calendars, as the same day of the week would have the same date through the year. If January 1 were, say, Monday, every Monday would be the 1st, 8th, 15th, and 22nd. Every Tuesday would be the 2nd, 9th, 16th, and 23rd, and so on throughout the year. The changes of the moon would be on about the same dates through the year, and many calculations like interest, dates of maturing notes, Easter Sunday, and many other important dates would be simplified. Although the present generation would have to figure new dates for birthdays and all legal holidays except New Year would be on a different date, yet the gain would be more than the loss, as that would be permanent and the objections trifling. The proposed change certainly has the merit of novelty, and it is just to say that the arguments in favor of the metric system on the ground of utility apply with considerable force in the present case. We fear, however, that the objections on the grounds of sentiment, which are strong in the matter of weights and measures, would be even stronger against the proposed revision of our methods 
of computing time. In 1881, New Year's night to be exact, around 8 o'clock, a fire was discovered southwest of the village, reported the local press at that time. At first, it was thought to be in the vicinity of the toll gate, but upon investigation, it was ascertained to be the barn of Mr. E.L. Smith of Portchester, situated near Byron Bridge. The barn, with several tons of hay, two wagons, and various farming utensils, all consumed, but the fire was checked before extending to other buildings. Well, the following comments were made in the Greenwich Observer on Saturday, January 8, 1881, and it's about, quote-unquote, the observance of the day. New Year's morning witnessed an agreeable change in the weather. During the morning, the mercury gradually went up until those on the street exchanged congratulations on the increasing warmth of the weather. The ringing of the church bells mingled with the merry jingle of sleigh bells was a pleasant melody. New Year's greetings, wishes for long life, health, and prosperity, and many such alluring anniversaries were to be heard wherever people met. Unfortunately for callers, the slaying outside of the village was not good, yet the custom was pretty extensively carried out. There were not as many making calls as in other years, but we noticed that a certain class which would not be permitted to call on ladies at any other time, New Year's, and who took advantage of the liberality and hospitality of the day to intrude their presence at such times, was not upon the street, and not until the custom of calling is purged of this objectionable element will it meet with true success and honest approval." No one should call New Year's Day where he would not feel at liberty to call on any other day of the year. It is gratifying to learn that the habit of putting wine upon the table is giving way to the use of tea and coffee and other non-intoxicating beverages. We have good reason to congratulate ourselves upon this improvement. And that was published in the Greenwich Observer on Saturday. January 8th, 1881. Well, the following story appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic on January 5th, 1923. And believe me, this is not a good way to start a new year. In fact, the headline on this is Bad New Year Start. Lester West's Jinx has a grudge against its auto. And the story uh, goes as follows. Lester West, son of Mr. and Mrs. Charles West of Riverside, who is associated with the real estate office of Neil Morrow Ladd, seems to have a jinx following him into the new year. Some two weeks ago, while driving his car east on the Boston Post Road at Riverside Avenue, another machine going in the same direction attempted to pass him on the right as he was about to make the turn into Riverside Avenue, and a crash resulted. His car, which was damaged to the extent of about $200, was repaired at a local garage and had just been turned over to him. On Sunday evening, while traveling along Putnam Avenue, Portchester, about 7 o'clock, the front of the car suddenly burst into flames, which spread with such rapidity that Mr. West narrowly escaped being seriously burned as the curtains were fastened on the car and he was obliged to rip down a back curtain and crawl through an opening. There was a high wind blowing at the time, which fanned the flames. A telephone message was received at fire headquarters, Portchester, and the Reliance Chemical made a quick run to Putnam Avenue, but could do 
nothing to save the car, which was totally destroyed. Nothing of any value was left aside from the engine. Mr. West agrees with his friends that it was a pretty poor way to start the new year. Well, my friends, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we pause to thank our police officers for their brave service in protecting us and uh, property here in the town of Greenwich. The, the police department, by the way, was founded in 1906. This story dates from 1883 in January of that year, to be precise, and it goes as follows. Burglars early on Monday morning broke into the house of Dr. Marshall, Captain Lockwood, Captain H.W.H. Wilson, sorry, Charles Conklin, and John Duff at Cascob, and succeeded in making away with a small quantity of money and jewelry and some clothing. At the residence of Mr. Duff, they were frightened off by the sound of a farm horn blown by a young lady, a member of the family, who mistook them for some of the family to wish, to whom she intended to wish, a quote-unquote happy new year. And we also have this from January 1907. The New Year's harvest of the police came before the borough court on Wednesday morning, and the roll call showed just five prisoners present. Two of the prisoners, Henry Merritt and Irving Banks, who were charged with drunkenness and abusive language, were taken in by Officer Nedley at about three o'clock on Tuesday afternoon near the upper end of Greenwich Avenue and lodged down below. Both were fined and fined and cost amounting to let's see, $6.32 in each case. Mike Dolacia, for getting too full of New Year's spirits, was arrested by Officer Fahey at the depot, that would be the uh, train station, Tuesday night and deposited in the police station. The charge was drunkenness and Mike had to pay $9.96 out of his next anticipated payroll, which may help him to keep sober for some time. Following the report of a burglary in Stamford and the description of two suspects, Officer Kramer arrested John Metrosky, or Metro, Metrosky, yes, that's right, and Michael Sigmund at the lower end of Greenwich Avenue at about 11 o'clock on Tuesday evening. When near the lockup, Metrosky made a dash up the street for liberty, but Sergeant Talbot and Officer Fahey, who was on his beat down Greenwich Avenue, headed him off. The fleet-footed Metrosky ran across the street and dashed into the school grounds. I'm assuming that would be the um, Havemeyer school grounds, where he was finally taken by Officer Fakey on the baseball field. Judge Burns did not think there were sufficient grounds for holding, so discharged them. And then, ladies and gentlemen, we have this. This is a very important letter to the selectmen. Again, this was in January 1907. And it says, I wish you enter a vigorous protest against the order you have recently issued that unmuzzled dogs be running, running loose in the town of Greenwich be shot. It is almost inconceivable that a body of men in a civilized and enlightened community in this age could even consider, let alone put into effect such an inhuman and unnecessarily cruel edict. Such a law might have been countenanced in the days when witches were burned at the stake, when intolerance, narrow-mindedness, and persecution were practiced and upheld. But in this day, when kindness, humanity, and common sense are supposed to um, actuate our lawmakers, the issuance of such an order as this would seem impossible. Do you realize what is 
what its enforcement means, practically that all dogs shall be kept muzzled constantly. Have you noticed the effect upon a dog muzzled for the first time? If you want mad dogs um, in, <laughs> in the town, the order will certainly have the desired effect. A dog in a country place cannot be kept constantly indoors, but if they are let out, they must be muzzled or confined by a strap, and if the dog happens to get out of the of the house without a muzzle, he is shot. And why? Because a dog had bitten an individual in Glenville? Have you found out whether the dog or the man was to blame? If a murder was committed, would you issue an edict that all men and women in the town be mandated to or manacled to prevent a repetition of the crime? If one dog in a thousand is dangerous, should all the other dogs uh, suffer for that reason? Muzzle dangerous dogs? Yes, but why the others? The town has a perfect right to impound unlicensed dogs, but it has no more right to destroy my inoffensive dog than it has my horse. I assume an owner could recover pecuniary, pecuniary damages from the town if his dog is killed without due cause. But how would a man who loves his dog be compensated, compel owners to license their dogs and make them responsible for them, and then provide a pound for stray dogs? This is the only sensible and humane solution of the matter. Really, quote, the more I see of men, the better I like dogs, quote unquote. And that is signed anonymously by a dog owner, and that was published if I can find it here, yes, in the January 4, 1907 edition of the Greenwich News on page 7. The best-kept secret in Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story in a restored historic mansion that inclusively brings people together thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. When you enter the doors of the 1858 Solomon Mead House, you'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and ambiance of Coffee for Good at 48 Maple Avenue. Serving coffee, teas, and delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good is a self-sustaining teaching platform that trains people with special needs who acquire the skills and self-confidence they need to thrive in the community. Voted Best Coffee Shop by the readers of Greenwich Magazine, honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association, and now the Jack Moffley Nonprofit Leadership Award, Coffee for Good is open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Enjoy free parking, free Wi-Fi, as well as year-round indoor and outdoor seating, a popular destination for gatherings, meetings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church in the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Visit coffeeforgood.org. I'd like to thank Greenwich Free Press for publishing the following public service announcement, and I would like you all, uh, please, to take down this information. And it goes as follows. The Greenwich Police Department is again teaming up with Riverside Service this holiday season to make sure Greenwich residents make it home safely from all of their holiday activities. The idea is that if a Greenwich resident is not sober to drive, they can contact the Greenwich Police Department's non-emergency number, which is 
800-800-8004 to make arrangements for a ride home from Riverside Service, including a free vehicle tow. This service has already begun, and it runs through January 3rd, 2024. Again, the, the police department's non-emergency number is 203 622 8004. And again, I would like to thank Leslie Yeager of Greenwich Free Press very, very much for publishing this public service announcement. One of the great historical luminaries of late 19th and early 20th century Greenwich, Connecticut, was Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard. He was a lawyer, writer, gifted storyteller. Um, uh, years ago, Frank Nicholson collected Judge Hubbard's published columns uh, that appeared in local newspapers here and organized them in the form of, um, of a compendium called Greenwich History, the Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard. Um, and edited or selected, edited, and uh, indexed by Frank Nicholson. Now, I have been finding that Judge Hubbard um, actually wrote uh, a number of columns that were not featured in that um, in that publication, which, by the way, you can uh, get at Greenwich Library. Just go to GreenwichLibrary.org um, and look it up and uh, take it out if you'd like to. Uh, the column, or I should say, well, it, it isn't under the column uh, called The Judge's Corner, but it just stands independently. This was published a hundred years ago um, in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, January 4th, 1924. Some people in modern-day Greenwich have asked me about um, the the town hall and the uh, former town halls uh, that existed in town, and uh, rather than just give you my own answer, which I could, um, I decided to share this with you, um, and its uh, title of this is The Old Town Hall. Again, Judge Hubbard gets interesting reminiscent, or interestingly reminiscent, I stand corrected. Um, and uh, so follow along, sit back, and, um, and you'll learn something new about our history. And it goes as follows. Mr. L.B. Edwards, that would be Lucian B. Edwards, in his interesting article last week on the town clerk's office, calls up many memories of those days when the office was the center of local political activity. The old town hall of 1833 stood where the Soldiers' Monument now stands. Now, for those of you that are not sure what that is, um, if you are driving east on East Putnam Avenue, you come to the intersection where the, con the Second Congregational Church is quite prominent, um, and you are attempting to go to Maple Avenue, you will see the Soldiers' Monument um, almost directly in front of you. Actually, when you head up um, Maple Avenue from that intersection, it will be on the right-hand side. Um, in the springtime, it is a very famous location for the crocuses that, um, that emerge there, signaling the begin of spring and therefore warmer weather, which we all look forward to here. Anyway, back to the article. And this is, um, he just mentioned about the old town hall of 1833. It was burned by a tramp on October 15, 1874. It had been used only as a public auditorium with a lockup in the basement and a trial room for justices of the peace. Most, if not all, of the town officials were quartered in a small frame building on Greenwich Avenue, where the brick building of Tuthill Brothers now stands. This building has been used as a recruiting station in the War of 1861. The town officials were well 
uh, accommodated during that period at the northeast corner of Sherwood Place and Putnam Avenue, then called Mechanic and Main Streets, in a large frame building that had been the edifice of the Second Congregational Church, but had been moved there after the completion of the new stone church. By the way, the stone church was completed in 1858. It was destroyed by fire on July 3, 1865, which compelled the town officials to move to inadequate quarters on Greenwich Avenue, and here they got along as best they could for nearly 10 years. They submitted to inconveniences because of the lack of the deposit on the part of taxpayers to give them something better. The war debt was called a serious burden, quote-unquote, whenever the taxpayers were asked to expend or expend any more money than was absolutely necessary for the running expenses of the town. But at the annual meeting of 1873, the question of a new town hall was pushed and Luke A. Lockwood, Drake Mead, William J. Mead, Odell C. Knapp, and Thomas A. Mead were appointed a committee to inquire into the, expedi- the expediency of erecting a new building. This committee was also charged with the duty of, recomm- of recommending a location, the size, architectural character, and internal arrangement of such a building, and the estimated cost. The following year, the committee reported progress and was continued. A set of plans had been prepared for a building to be erected on the site of the church, burned in 1865. By the way, that area uh, or that place um, is uh, known to us commonly as the um, Outdoor Traders Building, and that is over directly across the street from uh, the uh, the YMCA, and uh, also from um, uh, Glory Days Diner is next door. Um, but of course, this um, edifice burned and is gone. And the town actually bought the lot that would be at the corner of uh, Sherwood Place and um, East Putnam Avenue. Application was also made to the General Assembly for authority to issue bonds for seventy-five thousand dollars to erect the building. While the subject of a new town hall was under consideration, the town officials moved into Aaron P. Ferris's new building on Greenwich Avenue, and the town clerk's office, of which Mr. Edwards writes, was established on the north side of the building. Here in the front room, the genial town clerk, George Jackson Smith, entertained his farmer constituents and proudly pointed to what he called the most expensive wall decoration in town— the $1,200 framed elevation and plans of the town hall that was never built. Hmm. The rear room at North Side was occupied by judge of probate Myron L. Mason, designer of the town seal. The South Side was occupied by the selectmen and other officials when they were not crowded out by frequent trials before justices of the peace, and these were uh, often occurred six days in the week. The front of the building was rich in tin signs. The rent for the entire first floor was $600 per annum. There were but two regular law offices at that time, but much of the legal work was done in Stamford. Colonel H.W.R. Hoyt was open had opened an office in 1867, and Judge Myron L. Mason, who had been judge of probate in Westport and was elected to the same position here, had a small practice. We had no telephone, no electric lights, and the telegraph office was at the railroad station in charge of Thomas Hines and later John Doran. Prepaid messages were delivered not by a regular messenger boy, but by by such chance as offered, at 15 cents for the delivery. 
But as Mr. Edwards suggests, there was a lot going on in the town clerk's office 50 years ago, besides the recording of deeds, and one of the schemes therein devised was the purchase of the building occupied by the town. Aaron P. Ferris, the owner, called occasionally. He had widespread, or he had wide experience, rather, as a builder, one of his jobs being the construction of the first Methodist church edifice uh, in 1868. And I believe that that church still stands, and um, you can see that diagonally across the street from the YMCA today. He never built what Stephen Selleck called a single-string house, and if the old town building is ever torn down, it may amaze some of our youthful builders when they tackle the massive girders and the heavy studs, joists, and rafters of that thoroughly constructed building. But Mr. Ferris wanted to sell, and on the 15th of May, 1875, he presented to a special town meeting through Albert Finel's a written proposition to convey the property to the town for $11,500 to be paid in a series of notes drawing 7% interest and payable over the term of 10 years. He described the property as 50 feet wide in front and rear and 254 feet in depth. Of course, the town accepted, but it took some wire pulling and livery teams to accomplish it. The town still owns it, and it is leased in part to Mayor H. Cohen. At that time, the town had no water supply, sewage system, or streetlights except the few kerosene lights on Greenwich Avenue. Its police force consisted of a single watchman paid by uh, subscription for night patrol. The water supply for the town building was a large well, which was long ago filled up. But it is probable that the occupants of the building soon began to realize its unsanitary condition, for at the annual meeting in 1878, the town clerk and judge probate were authorized, quote, to make needed repairs and improvement at an expense not to exceed $300 in the rear of the town building for the purpose of proper use and protection of the well to effect safe and convenient exit from the rear doors of the building, to build a cistern for the use of the tenants and as a provision against fire, unquote. At the same meeting, it was voted to build a lockup, which still stands on the premises. The tenants of the building, for whose comfort the voters seemed so solicitous, were the town officers, while the second floor was rented for offices. Dr. L.P. Jones, later Edward J. Wright, the county commissioner, occupied the front room south. The front room north was occupied by the writer, and that would be Lucian B. Edwards. L.J. Walsh and later James F. Walsh um, occupied two of the rear rooms, while the others on the south side were occupied by Dr. Beverly E. Mead, a dentist, shared by Benjamin A. Russell, music teacher, organist, and insurance agent. A family occupied the upper floor. The rent of these two floors was about $360 per annum. To the writer, there are some tender memories associated with the old building. It was every man for himself. There was no janitor. Each one ran his own stove. The water supply was limited to a pail full once a day. Ashes were a nuisance. There were no typewriters. But in front of the open coal stove on winter evenings, when the kerosene lamps had burned low and the glow of the fire was reflected across the ceiling, 
There was many a night when the boys gathered to discuss matters both public and private. Jokes, puns, and college songs may have disturbed the sleeping tenants upstairs, but who could control those youths on the sunny side of 25 who felt that they had 300 years to live and were without a care? <laughs> they called their little gathering, quote, the Grindstone Club, unquote, Harry Thurston Peck president. The only purpose of the organization was to grind out jokes and usually at the expense of the town's people. It was this company of young fellows who named the building Lincoln's Inn after the famous rendezvous of lawyers in London. Peck was then an undergraduate at Columbia College, but he wielded a fectile pen and, and had many a check from the comic papers for his contributions. He possessed a wonderful mixture of dignity and decorum with frivolity and nonsense. After his graduation in 1881, he was called to Columbia, first as a tutor, but within two years he occupied the chair of Professor of English Literature, which he held until a short time before his tragic death in March 1914. Dr. Peck was a linguist of considerable note. At the age of 10, he could speak Spanish fluently, and later he was equally accomplished in Italian, French, and German. After his graduation from Columbia and before taking up his duties here or there, he studied in Berlin, Paris, and Rome. From 1897 to 1901, he was the literary editor of the Commercial Advertiser, and he was the first editor of The Bookman. As the editor of Appleton's Encyclopedia, his face in the advertisements of that publication was familiar for nearly two years to all the magazine readers in the world. His magazine articles <clears throat> were frequent, and he was the author of several volumes published by Dodd, Mead, and Company. His most important work was a volume of 800 pages, which appeared in 1906, entitled 20 Years of the Republic, 1885-1905. to This volume was dedicated to the memory of his father, for whom he always evinced a strong affection, and who owned and occupied for many years the Elms, quote-unquote, where he conducted a military school during the period of the Civil War and subsequently a boarding house until his death in 1887. In 1906, when the history was published, Harry Thurston Peck was a doctor of laws with a number of lesser literary degrees. In comparison to this book and uh, with his story of Perry Heck and Melcher, Bore, uh, beer, uh, be, bead, sorry, reveals the two sides of this brilliant author, the former dignified, comprehensive, and thoughtful, and the latter a whirlwind of nonsense. If the reader will transpose the initial letters of the names of the story's title, the true names will be apparent. One night, sitting with his feet in a chair and puffing tobacco smoke from his pipe, in the open stove door, he reeled off some lines, doubtless impromptu, which at the demand of his fellows were subsequently reduced to writing and published in the Stanford Herald. They follow. The title is Lincoln's Inn. Oh, quote, uh, oh, I wish I lived in Lincoln's Inn, where the signs are made of guilt and tin. With my feet in a chair, I sit and grim. It's the way they do in Lincoln's Inn. There's music up in Lincoln's Inn, from a whistle down to a horn of tin. There's the stamp of the client on the stair, and the doleful shriek of wild despair. From the man who writhes 
in the dental chair whilst a silvery strain flocks out afar from the squeak box played by B.A.R. till those who pass stand still and grim in front of the doors of Lincoln's Inn. Oh, the northwest end of Lincoln's Inn is the place where the town's hard cash doth spin. Hmm. There, Meow sits like a courthouse spire near the great town seal of the learning of the learned squire, which shows old Putt as a true high flyer, and all the neighboring towns admire, where the town pays its lengthy doctor's bills, for the poor of the town are fed on pills, while the taxpayers suffer more grievous ills than at night when the darkness is complete, when the faithful watchman treads his beat. And his boots resound in the silent street. Many fo- for many of spectre weird he sees the ghosts of departed lawyers' fees and spirits pale of all des- degrees, who perch in the dark on the signs of Tim. Oh, a rare old place is Lincoln's Inn, and that is signed by Frederick A. Hubbard, and that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, in January fourth. 1924, a century ago. Well, just before the beginning of 1923, a masquerade party was held at the Field Club, which uh, is located over on Lake Avenue. Um, And um, I'd like to share this with you. This was published in the Friday, January 5th, 1923 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic, and it goes as follows. The Field Club was the scene of a brilliant society event last Saturday evening, it being the annual masquerade New Year's dance of the club. The ballroom represented a circus tent over which were suspended some 200 varied colored balloons. Christmas trees and greens were also used as decorative features. There were about 250 prominent society people present, and the numerous oriental and other costumes worn by the dancers were more attractive than ever. Among those who had dinner parties preceding the supper dance, and by the way, this is kind of a long list, but I'll go through it as quickly as I can, uh, were Martin J. Quinn Jr., Mrs. E.M. Morris, Mrs. H. H. Jessup, Mrs. Morton C. Nichols, and Mrs. W. W. Burge. A party of 50 had dinner at the Pickwick Arms early in the evening. Sherbo's New York Orchestra of five pieces furnished the music. The entertainment committee consisted of Mrs. Walter L. Douglas, chairman, Mrs. John Heffron, Mrs. David S. Baker, and Mrs. Hugh C. Layton. Others present included Mrs. George E. Vincent, Mr. and Mrs. A. L. Ferguson, Mr. and Mrs. Calvin Truesdale, Mr. and Mrs. Charles A. Moore, Mr. and Mrs. Eugene Maxwell Moore, Mr. and Mrs. Stuart Carthart, Mr. and Mrs. George L. Storm, Mr. and Mrs. C.D. Rafferty, Mr. and Mrs. Charles D. Lanier, Miss Mary Lanier, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Hart Bowling of Philadelphia, Mr. and Mrs. Frederick C. Ewing, Mr. and Mrs. Marshall C. Bacon. And there you go. That was recorded, or actually published, rather, on January 5th, 1923. Well, the year 1924, of course, 100 years ago, started off with the people of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, opening their uh, January 4, 1924 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. 
and in reading the following New Year's resolution, which was published by the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce. I think it's very, very nicely worded. I'd like to show it to you, or read it to you, rather. Sorry. <laughs> we, wish, we wish Greenwich to grow excellently, but not too fast. We who are already here know that we live in the finest residential town in America. We wish to attract to it home seekers who will appreciate such a town as ours and cooperate with us to make it still better, still a better town. To this end, we must all work for public schools of the highest standard and unsurpassed roads. We must endeavor to keep Greenwich a distinctly rural residential town. Its rural beauty has been its greatest asset. It must be preserved. Intelligent zoning will save us millions of dollars. We must be able to call attention to the excellence of our roads, public and private schools, water supply, fire and police protection, and to the way in which a country atmosphere and unrivaled rural beauty have been preserved for the future. Won't you, who read this, join with us in this New Year's resolution? We are going to do our best to make Greenwich a still better town. Well, it was January 4th, 1924, that the people of Greenwich opened up their Greenwich News and Graphic, learned about a man who was said to be a prince staying at the Pickwick Arms Hotel, uh, who was boarding there, and he was being sued for $2,240 in taxi fare, which he had apparently not paid. You can imagine in 1924, that was an enormous amount of money. Uh, <laughs> Prince Vladimirovich Igidilov, I think that's how you pronounce it, who is stopping at the Greenwich, or the Pickwick Arms, I stand corrected, um, appeared in supplementary proceedings before Justice McGeegan in the City Court, New York, on Thursday, December 27, relative to judgments entered against him for a $2,240 auto rental bill. The prince explained that he was doing his best to pay off the judgments, but that he could not do so until he secured work and had been unable to find a job since he lost a position in a Wall Street brokerage house. It was brought out that the auto rent bill had really been run up by the prince's second wife, from whom he is now separated. He had been divorced from his first wife. Well, we would hope so. Anyway, on with the story. Berger and Berger, who represents Alfred G. Kraft uh, and who obtained the judgment as counsel, argued that the prince ought to be able to pay since he is living at the Pickwick Arms at a rate of $400 a month. Quote-unquote, that is not so, the prince declared. Quote, for it is costing me only $4 a day there. Justice McKeegan looked up the prince for a moment in surprise and then remarked, quote, I have been there and paid more than $4 for an ordinary meal. If they are charging you only $4, they are cheating their other patrons. The prince made no reply and the justice said he would take the papers in the case and reserve decision. The case, which was to have been heard in the Greenwich Borough Court, has been put over until January, but will probably not come up for trial here. Wright and Hirschberg are associate lawyers with Berger and Berger, and William C. Runge appears for the Prince. <music> 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the New Year's Eve, 31st of December, 2023 episode of the Greenwich to Town for All Season Show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. And as always, the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. I like to hear from my listeners. You can do that by contacting me by email at GreenwichandTownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Learn more about Greenwich, Connecticut's history and listen to past shows by going to GreenwichandTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Please look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 9th of January, 2024. Be well, my friends. Celebrate, have fun, keep it safe now. Take good care. Literally, I'll see you next year. All right, bye-bye now. (laughs) 